I now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 7 as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount and continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Hear the words of your Savior. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask you to fill us all with your spirit that we might receive and hear and then obey to make right application of the things that your son has taught us. Loosen my tongue that I might articulate these things clearly. Deliver us from all error, we pray. Deliver us from every distraction. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> Folks who spend a considerable amount of effort in preparing for the end of civilization have become known as preppers. I'm sure you've heard that term before. The first time I ever met a prepper was in 1999 as the threat of the Y2K computer glitch was looming. For those of you younger than what, 28? 25. You may not know about this. This may be news to you. Uh, we used to use two digits for the years in all of our dates um, and in all of our computer code. But as we got nearer to the year 2000, we realized that these computers that we increasingly relied on for everything would not be able to tell the year 2000 from the year 1900. And that when the calendar turned over to 2000, it would create this cascading corruption of data. And there was this moment in time where we experienced this fairly widespread fear, I would say, that when our computer systems rolled over to the year 2000, everything would fail. The power grid would collapse, airplanes would fall out of the sky, the circuit boards in satellites would just fry, and we couldn't get cable TV anymore. And uh, the thing that goes beep at the grocery store checkout wouldn't go beep anymore. And all those things would happen and society would unravel. Now, as most of you uh, recall, if you're older than, say, 25, um, maybe 28 or 30, um, th there were people who were preparing for this disintegration of Western civilization. They were expecting that at midnight on December 31st, 1999, everything would fall apart. And so they stockpiled food and cash and precious metals and ammunition. They bought generators. And, and that was the first, those were the first preppers that I ever encountered. Now, of course, Thankfully, the tech world was able to get on the problem, attack it, and it turned out that it, it was just a big nothing. And the preppers were left to figure out, now what do we do with five-gallon buckets of rice and five-gallon <laughs> buckets of, of powdered milk that they had bought? I'll never forget one basement stash that I, I saw. I was shown around this uh, basement, basement stash. It included a five-gallon bucket of lemon pie filling. 
And it struck me as so hilarious that in what apocalyptic scorched earth scenario would there be a call for five gallons of lemon pie filling? It was just so oddly specific. Uh, it was just so hilarious to me. But there was this palpable sense of disappointment for these preppers that they didn't get to even turn on their generators. There was this disappointment that they didn't get to use the things that they had laid aside. And we can laugh now because Y2K turned out to be nothing. It was solved because people took it seriously and did what was necessary to prevent trouble. And there have been many other disasters and many other emergencies in the time since then that we've gone through that we were not prepared for, that we did not see coming. And there's no question that it does make good sense to save money, to put back resources, to be prepared for all kinds of economical and social disruptions. It's just faithful living to be a good steward of what God has given you insofar as you are able to put yourself in a position to feed your family no matter what. But we don't become so consumed with the fear of looming disaster that we're not able to live and enjoy God's good blessings today. We're not so terrified of what may happen that we're unable to be faithful today and take risks and build things because we have this paralyzing fear over the next big cataclysm. That's not what is called for. Christians are not to be defined by their panic or despair or their dread of the future, though that seems to be what this extreme kind of prepper mindset seems to engender, this, this perpetual restlessness that's always afraid of the next big cataclysm. Not to mention the fact that no one can quite agree what the next big disaster is going to be, what disaster we're supposed to be preparing for, knowing the way that God works, the next time he moves in a major way to shake things up, it will be something that no one saw coming, that no one was prepared for. Um, we didn't have time to prepare for it in a material way. Well, whatever we do, whatever you do, and all of your plans and preparations for the future, we must not forget to do the one thing that Jesus says to do that will prepare us for tribulation that will preserve us through cataclysm. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not say stockpile toilet paper or ammunition or lemon pie filling. He does not say that these are the things that are going to preserve you. He says, here's what will preserve you. Hear what I say and obey. Hear my word and do it. That is what is going to preserve you. If you want your house to stand in the coming storm, if you want your life to be established when the lives of many are being washed away, if you want to be secure and at peace and at rest, no matter what, hear and obey. That's what he says. You can take care of all the financial, all the material preparations you like, but if you do not hear and obey, your life will not stand. You will fall apart. Now, the coming disaster that Jesus is referencing, it's not hypothetical. It's not a big nothing. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is warning his disciples that the world that they are so used to is coming to a swift and violent end, and that there is a specific way to prepare for this. He says, uh, as we've studied over the last couple of weeks, Jesus says, step off that wide path that leads to destruction. Follow me on this narrow and difficult, unpopular path. 
Don't listen to the false prophets who are leading you through the gate that leads to destruction. Hear and obey me, Jesus says. And that's pretty profound. It's pretty bold for Jesus to say, hear and obey me, to command their obedience. Jesus is deliberately elevating his word and his voice to a level of authority that's reserved for Yahweh. Only God the Father can speak the way that Jesus is speaking here and say, hear me and obey me. But that's exactly what he does. And everybody notices that that's what he's doing. Because after he's done, I just read this a minute ago, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. Can he say that? Can he really do that? Can he take on that authority for himself? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He can do this. Jesus can speak this way without hesitation because Jesus is the word of Yahweh. Listen to me, he says, and do what I tell you to do. And you and your children are going to be delivered through the imminent calamity that is headed our way. And the calamity and the disaster that happens not in just this life, but in the life to come. You will be spared. You will have eternal life. Now, was Jesus a true prophet or was he a false prophet? Did his words hold together? Uh, did what he say happen? Well, of course, history bears this out. Those who listen to Jesus who believed in him, who stepped off of the road that led to destruction, were spared. Their, their practical disaster preparations took the form of rejecting zealotry, uh, selling their land around Jerusalem. You see that in the opening chapters of Acts. Everybody's selling their land. Why? Because uh, the property values in Jerusalem are about to drop way down. They have to sell and they get out. And when they go, when they get out of Jerusalem, they take the gospel with them to all the cities of the Roman Empire. Now, as they go, there's still persecution. There's persecution from Rome. There's persecution from the synagogues. But the disciples are shaped and strengthened by that suffering. And the church survives and flourishes through those storms, through those floods and winds. And the church has long outlasted Jerusalem. It has long outlasted Rome. Jesus proved to be a true prophet. The church is the house that stood while these other houses collapsed. The church is the legacy of those who heard and obeyed. Uh, and and that, that has proven uh, to be the case. So here, Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And as he does this, he gives this parable, this short parable about two houses with two different foundations. There's one built on the rock and one built on the sand. There's one which stands in the storm and one which falls in the storm. Now, we all know Jesus was raised in the home of a carpenter, and so he speaks as a reliable authority on construction. And the picture that he paints here of houses standing or falling, once again, this is not an implausible scenario. We don't read this and say, oh, that would never happen. Uh, even in, in the context that he's saying in this, there are parcels of land in Palestine that at certain times of the year might look like a really good place to build your house. Uh, that they're only wet and flooded at certain times of the year. And so during the summer, a builder might find a really nice, flat, dry area to build a house on 
But when winter comes, that house is going to be right in the middle of a raging river. And so if you're not careful, if you're not wise, you might build your house in the middle of a future riverbed. And when winter comes, your house is going to be washed away. Or you might be tempted to build your house anywhere if there's a nice flat level uh, area of sand uh, to put the foundation on top of the sand, to build your house on top of the sand and not take all the extra time and labor and expense of digging down to hit the bedrock. Now, if you just build it on top, on the surface, that too is going to spell disaster. Only the house that is established firmly on the rock is going to stand whatever floods or whatever storms come. And if you look at these two houses, and if you just picture the two houses in Jesus's parable, from a distance, both houses are going to look pretty much the same. The foundation is hidden. The foundation is not seen. And foundations aren't spectacular. Foundations aren't noteworthy. Above ground, the two houses are going to be very similar. They have doors, they have windows, they have a roof, might have a, a chimney. You might not notice even much difference between the two builders, the two men who build the houses, because both men want a house. They both want a place where their families can be protected and warm. And nobody, nobody intentionally builds a house in such a way that they think, oh yeah, this is gonna collapse. Oh yeah, this is gonna fall down. Both of them build expecting their house to stand. Both houses are subject to the very same external stresses and forces in the very same order. Did you notice that when I was reading it? Look at the house that's built on the rock. What happens to it in verse 25? The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. That's the house built on the rock. What about the house built on the sand? Was the storm more intense? Did different things happen? No, the same things in the same order. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. So the very thing, same thing happens to both houses. The wise man may not have built his house in the bed of the river, but there's still a flood. Maybe the river has overflown its banks in a way that nobody could predict or nobody could anticipate. And now these flood waters are prevailing upon his house. Both houses have rain and floods and winds that beat on them. The firm foundation of the house built on the rock, that firm foundation did not prevent it from getting battered by the storm. In no way does the fact that the storm beat on the well-built house, the storm doesn't indicate oh, there was some defect in the building of the house. That's why God sent the storm. No, uh, the external pressures and threats and stresses came on both houses, but only one of the two houses stood. The first one was beaten, but stood because it was founded on the rock. The second was beaten and it fell and great was its fall because it was not built on the rock. The difference between the man whose life is established and the man whose life falls is not what happens to him. This is a, this is a critical point. We all must get our minds and our arms around this. What causes us to either stand or fall is not what comes to us from the outside. 
When you see someone's life collapse, we may think, oh, wow, look at all the circumstances they've been through. Look at all the things that have happened to them. And well, you could see it coming. They, they, they lost their faith and they lost their trust in God and they've, everything's just kind of unraveling. But boy, you could see it coming because of all the sickness and all the trouble and all the travail that happened from the outside. But you see, that's not the metric. That's not the difference. The difference is not what came from the outside. And it's not consistently the case that everyone who experiences turmoil and suffering from the outside collapses. That's just not true. They both have trouble. They both have the same trouble. The difference is that one has a better foundation than the other. One hears and obeys, and the other hears but does not obey. That makes all the difference. The man who builds his house on the sand, he's heard, he's been exposed to the truth, but he hasn't patiently applied what he has heard. He's like uh, the man who tries to build a bookcase without reading the instructions. The book is right there. And you think, no, I don't have time for that. I'm just going to put it together. I can do this. He's hasty and impatient. He doesn't have any time for foundational things. The foolish man hears, he's exposed to the truth, passively, but he doesn't listen actively. He doesn't feel the need to really understand uh, because he's his own expert. You can't tell him anything. He doesn't need instruction on in how to live and how to think and how to run his business and how to do his job and how to raise his children and educate them or how to be faithful in his marriage. He just likes to make it up as he goes along do whatever feels right. Whatever just makes sense to me in the minute, that's what I'm going to do. I don't care about what's been done in the past. I don't care about good tradition. I don't care about protocol. I follow impulses and ideas. That is the mantra of the foolish man. And on top of that, he has a really bad imagination. He can't think about the next step or the step after that or the step after that and consider what's going to happen if I keep building this way. No, he's just living in the moment, doing it the way he wants to do it, and he's not listening to instruction. The wise man hears and obeys. He humbly admits, I don't know what I'm doing, and I need a lot of help, and I need a lot of instruction. I need, I need people to help me do this the right way. I'm not an expert. So I should consult people who've done this before. I need some guidance. I'm more interested in what is right than what I feel. I want principles, not impulses. And so the foundation of the wise man's house is grounded on the bedrock of what Jesus says. It's not built on the shifting sands of his own emotions, of his own thoughts, of his own desires. In building these houses, the laying of the foundation is everything. It's critical. The, foundation, the foundational hearing and obeying sets the shape and the direction of the rest of the building project. If the foundation is wrong, the whole house is wrong and needs to be torn down and you need to start over. When the house is built, it's too late to make changes. When the storm starts to blow, the foundation, which is not seen, it becomes the most important thing about the house. The fate of the entire house rests on the foundation, which is why the Apostle Paul writes, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation but Christ 
on which you can build your life and expect it to stand. There is no other foundation on which you can build your family or any other institution. If you want it to stand, it must be built on Christ. If you build on any other foundation, it will fall and great will be its fall. Somehow conservative Christians, evangelicals, fine people have gotten really good at house building, at institution building, in this naive, good-natured way that doesn't lay an explicitly Christian foundation, building things that don't, from the start, confess loudly and boldly, unapologetically, that Jesus is king and must be obeyed. Jesus is king, and he gets to reign over everything because we don't make anybody mad. So out of deference to all kinds of people, we keep our explicit Christian convictions buried. Don't want to speak the name of Jesus too loudly around the wrong people. Uh, they might think we're weird or fanatics or fundamentalists or, or something else. We'll just, we'll just lead with something else. We'll keep our Christian convictions back here. We'll lead with something else. We'll lead with family values. Everybody has family values, right? I mean, Muslims have family values. Mormons have family values. Jews have family values. I mean, American traditions, that's what we'll lead with. National symbols, that's what we lead. We think, we th we're so fooled into thinking that we can have this neutral foundation, this good old apple pie, Chevrolet, natural law assumption that everybody can share in good things without acknowledging the triune God who gives us those good things and the God who demands our obedience and worship in everything. And we're not going to build on that. We're just going to build on good old American values. And then when the storm clouds gather and the floods rise and the winds blow, everything we built gets knocked over and taken over by wicked people. This has happened in every single institution in our society. Can you name one institution that has not been compromised by people who hate God's law and love rebellion and chaos. Can you think of one? The church herself has not been immune because even the church, we think we can have this neutral agreement with the world that, that the way to reach the world is to just be like the world and to hear but just not obey what Jesus has said. And what happens is we get blown away again and again and again. Everything ever established on any other foundation but Christ gets relegated to the dumpster of history. Everything not founded on Christ in time and history gets blown away and demolished and torn down. There is no other foundation but Christ. If you want your life or your family, or your institution to stand, it must be grounded on obedience to Jesus in all things, or it's headed for disaster. Whatever you're building, lay your foundation with this open, explicit, unapologetic acknowledgement that Jesus is king, or else your house will fall. Why, why do we do, why do we, why do we trade that off for these other things? We, we, we want to we earn the respect of wicked people instead of pleasing God. And then we get shown to be fools over and over. Who is Jesus directing these words to? Who is he speaking to? 
And to this point in the sermon, Jesus has made these broad uh, contrasts between man's law and God's law. Uh, so he says over and over, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's talked about the wide way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. Bad trees that bear bad fruit and good trees that bear good fruit. False prophets and faithful teachers. These are all wide, big contrasts between the world of unbelief and the world of belief. But here in this final parable, he brings all that down to a fine point. He brings it in close to his community of disciples. There's two men, the wise builder and the foolish builder, and they both hear his words. They both have access to the truth. They both are close enough to Jesus to have been exposed to his teaching. To put this in our present context, they're both members of the church. They both own Bibles. They both listen to sermons and listen to podcasts that, that, that teach theology. They, they may even have read the same books. And from a distant distance, both of them look similar. The foundations are, are hidden way out of view. There's uh, the, the man with the weak foundation, he looks okay. He looks okay from the outside. Uh, and and he's, he looks all right, and he looks confident in what's going on. We're, we're apt to develop this smug kind of presumption based on our supposed superior knowledge. We assume that our great intellectual content is what covers our sin, that, that what covers me before God is my bookshelves. I mean, look, look at all this. This is what covers me before God and all these things that I've read and all the things I've listened to and all the things that I know, that is what covers my sin. Of course, it is not, most assuredly, only the sacrifice of Jesus and his grace toward me is what covers my sin. But we think that because of this content, because of this articulation of truth, God doesn't really mind my rebellion or my wickedness or my idolatry all that much because I know so much. I just, I just know so much. My theology is all sorted out. I'm so well taught and I'm so articulate. That just covers everything and I really don't need to obey. There's some guys out there, they need to obey. They need to straighten up. But I, boy, I'm educated. I've really got this all sorted out. Do I need to tell you that's a lie? Do you think God is impressed with disobedient intellectuals? Do you really think that? Have we convinced ourselves that God is so satisfied with our knowledge that we can get away with disobedience? That's the difference between these two houses. If you hear but don't obey, Jesus says you're a fool and your house is going to collapse and it's going to be disastrous if you hear and don't obey. Do you think the solution is more hearing or more obeying? L looking at these two houses, the foundations are buried. You can't see them. And so if you walk up to both of them and you ask, well, which one's going to stand or fall? Which one is hearing only? Which one is hearing and obeying? When do you find that out? When do you learn that? Well, not when the sun is shining, not when the birds are singing. It's when things are normal, when things are going fine, it's pretty easy for everything to look normal and good and attractive externally for both of them. You find out what the foundation is made of when the storm reveals the truth. 
When the storm of crisis hits, the storm of injury or sickness or death or job loss, the storm of large social disruption, uh, when that storm blows, you see how deep the foundation goes. The storm is judgment day for houses built on sand. And when that storm blows, the house that stands is not the one that's built on the foundation of intellectual knowledge alone. The, the house that stands is not the one that's built on vain verbal confession of theological terms that have no significant impact on your life or your behavior. The firm foundation is not whether you can say nice, polite, enthusiastic things about Jesus. That's not the foundation that stands. The foundation that remains, the house that remains, is a thriving faithfulness in Jesus that actively applies all of the things we say we believe and demonstrably, outwardly, obeys the truths we're so proud that we know. Active participation in the life of Jesus is the descriptor of the house that stands. Hear and obey. The specific things that Jesus tells us in um, the Sermon on the Mount are the sayings that he's talking about here. We don't have to scratch our head and wonder what sayings is he talking about? He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. So if you want to be a wise man, you need to hear his sayings. What sayings? The ones in the Sermon on the Mount primarily. That is the context. Uh, what has he told us in this sermon? Well, we've spent several weeks studying this sermon. Well, let's do a quick recap. What has he told us? He's told us who is blessed, who is lifted up in the kingdom of heaven. Those are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Those are the values. Those are, that's who is blessed in the kingdom of heaven. He tells us to be salt and light. He tells us to fulfill his father's law in a way that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. He calls us to remember that murder and adultery begin in the heart, that all law-breaking begins in the desires, in the motives. He shows us in the sermon how to diffuse violent and angry and oppressive men by doing the unexpected thing, by doing the redemptive thing, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. He says uh, to love your enemies, to bless those who curse you, to give charitably without calling attention to it. He calls us to ask God for our daily bread, to pray that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. He calls us to forgive and to mean it when we forgive, to refrain from worry, to refrain from judging other people based on unbiblical standards. He calls us to ask and to seek and to knock and to call on the Father for what you need, to take the narrow path and to beware of false teachers. These are the sayings. These are the things. These words form the firm, stable, secure foundation of our lives when we hear them and obey them. Now, if you don't have this foundation, if you don't hear and do these things, what is it? What is your foundation? What are you building on? What do you think is going to hold your life together? It's important to know an answer to that question because the storm is most certainly coming. We don't know what that storm is. We don't know how intense it'll be. We don't know how long it's gonna last. But your life, I can guarantee this, your life will be hit with trouble. And when it is hit with trouble, it will expose 
the weakness of your foundation. Your house will collapse and great will be the fall if you're basing your life on anything other than these words, hearing and obeying them. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, I think we should all be preppers of a kind, preppers of a sort, that we should all be preparing right now to weather whatever storms, whatever disasters, whatever calamities are headed our way in the future by doing first the thing that Jesus says here. You, you want to get the other things sorted out? Go ahead, knock yourself out. But first, do the things that Jesus said. Use these words, the very sermon of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as a regular checklist to grow intensely intimate with the words of Jesus and ask yourself and ask your family, are we doing this? Does, is, our life, uh, is, is our life together in accord with Jesus' teaching here? Is there anywhere that we're out of line? Is there anywhere that the Holy Spirit is convicting us to repent and put down our idols and grow? And then to get busy making those adjustments. We have a little bit of peace right now. I know things are crazy in Washington. If you read the news, everything's always on fire. But we've got clothes and the lights come on when you flip the switch. And, you know, we, we all got here today, so we got vehicles, and we were able to afford gas, and I hope you can eat today. I hope we've got, we've got uh, a little bit of security. We've got a little bit of respite. Right now is the time to not get lazy, to not get complacent, but to check the foundations. Make sure everything is secure. Strengthen the bonds of fellowship. And where you need to, do some demolition. Tear out the weak and rotten construction. Strengthen your family's commitment to Christ and his church. Obey even when it's difficult to obey. The thing that you think of as you consider the words of Jesus, the thing you think of it is so hard to imagine doing, you just can't imagine yourself obeying in that direction, that's the thing you need to do. The thing that the Holy Spirit is convicting you most of, that's priority number one. That's the thing that, that you need to do more than anything. Submit and do it. Hear and obey. Children, children, do not just sit and soak up God's word and think, oh, well, we went to church and we heard some things and that was fine and good. Now I'm on to the rest of my things. Hear and obey. Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, hear and obey. Jesus says, if you hear and obey, you are wise. If you hear and obey, your house will stand. If you hear and don't obey, your house will fall and great will be its destruction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you for your spirit that we might be strengthened to both hear and do all that your son has taught us. Put us on the path of following him to, to take up our cross and to live lives that imitate the life of your son and grow us together. Strengthen us right now so that when the storm and the wind comes, we will be steadfast and secure and at peace and rest in you and your providences. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.